Our text of scripture this morning from Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. This is a wonderful passage. If you ever want to have some fun, if you've got a Jewish friend, open up his own Bible and take him through Isaiah 53. It is quite amazing. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet he was, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living and that he was cut off out of the land, I'm sorry, and stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That was written 722 years before Jesus was born, prophesying his work. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word and then you would show us ourselves. We pray, O King, that your word would enter into our hearts by the power of your spirit and would work there what only your word and spirit can work in the life of a man or woman. We pray, Father, that it would correct us where we're wrong, that it would rebuke us where we're in stubborn error and sin, that it would exhort us where our hands are weak and we've gotten tired and lazy, and that it would train us in all righteousness. And we ask this for the sake of the one who suffered and died for us. 
That is Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, the theme uh, that was pulled from the line of the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, was far as the curse is found. Now, I don't remember if I announced this last week or not, but for Advent, each week, we're going to take a line from a different Christmas hymn, and we're going to meditate on what that line means. But as Timothy said this morning, um, our theology is very often taught to us by our hymnology, and that's what it's for. It's to teach us the Word of God. And so all of these things are deep and rich with Scripture. And uh, as I said last week, far as the curse is found was, was what we were looking at last week. The idea being that all of reality and all of life in this world is under a curse of God. A doctrine which we find in Genesis 3, where God responds to the sin of Adam and Eve. And the idea of the whole hymn is that the birth of Jesus is an occasion for great rejoicing because he comes to reverse that curse. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Recall also that we had a little history lesson about how the church got its calendar. And we talked about how the practice of having a, a year structured around the things that God has done and memorials of them or times of repentance and things like that arose out of Israel's national life in the Old Testament where God explicitly commanded that there were times set aside as certain holy days and they were to be set apart for specific acts of worship and repentance and commemoration and thanksgiving. How many of you know that God owns all of your time? It's not your time. It's his time. You know, people sometimes get irritated with me because I'm a preacher. I talk a lot. And they say, well, you're wasting my time. You don't have time. Every gift, every moment you get is a gift from God who ordains those moments and is in charge of your time. And every one of them is pure gift. And then when he's decreed that your moments are going to run out, guess what? You leave time, right? You go somewhere else outside of time. And God has, at least in the Old Testament, intentionally structured the time of his people. And woven into that pattern then were, uh, was also a, a yearly cycle of reading the whole Old Testament within the context of weekly Sabbath worship in the synagogue. You know, one of the, the great blessings, there are so many blessings to being alive today. They really are. I mean, some of us like to look back at the old days and, and think that life was better in the old days, and in certain ways it was, but in certain ways it wasn't. Like, I'm a big fan of antibiotics and air conditioning, honestly. I mean, but, uh, uh, you know, one of the great blessings of living today is the easy availability of cheap books. A Bible can be had for about the price of a Happy Meal. And if you have a computer, it can be had for free read online. It was not this way always. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, in the time of Paul, a single book of the Bible, like the Psalms or the Gospel of Matthew or the book of Romans, had to be copied by hand, and it would have cost about a year's wages for your average working man just to possess the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. 
And so the only way for a believing Jew to hear the scriptures and to learn the scriptures was to go to the public worship of the people of God in the synagogue and then to hear those scriptures read and then meditated on. And this cycle then was deeply embedded in Jewish life. The, their whole way of marking time was determined by the scriptures and by these celebrations. You had six days of labor and you had one day of rest and worship where the word of God is read to them and unfolded to them. You had 12 months that were measured in 28-day increments that were keyed to the cycles of the moon. And there were three festivals during this year, this lunar year, that required three trips to Jerusalem each year to worship and sacrifice and celebrate in the temple if you were close enough to do it. And if you were far away, you had to go at least once in your lifetime unless you were hindered by God. It's kind of like the Muslims have the trip to Mecca. And they, every Muslim has to make a trip to Mecca uh, before he dies, if it's at all possible. Well, the Jews had to go to Jerusalem if it was at all possible. And they did. And they went in their thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands from all over the world. And so they would go and they would sacrifice and celebrate Passover, which took place in about March, April. And then 50 days later, they would celebrate Pentecost in June. And then they would celebrate the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot in September, October time frame. And then there were other feasts which they observed in their homes as individuals and families and friends. Holidays like Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. Purim, which commemorates the celebration of the people's uh, saving from uh, eradication while they were captive in Persia through the, through the work of God through Queen Esther. And then there was Hanukkah and, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so their very rhythm of life was designed to remind them all the time of God's gracious dealings with Israel as they lived their life together with God. That was the structure of their life, and they loved it, and it was good for them. You know, one of the things that the Jews say even today is, um, as, as this, the Jews have kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath has kept the Jews. And there's this idea then that stopping what you're doing for one day in seven and marking it out and saying, this is a holy day and we're not going to do anything on this day except pay attention to God, that that has an effect on how you live your life and how your children live their lives and your grandchildren. And it marks you apart as a separate people. And Christians, particularly Reformed Christians, and particularly in Holland and in, in Scotland, discovered that it was the same for them as we kept the Sabbath day on a Sunday rigorously. It tended to preserve us. It tended to enable us to transmit things to the family. You see, when, when your kids think that church is optional and, and sports are more important or donuts or um, laying around on a Sunday and not doing anything, well, then they discover how important God really is to you. But if you say no, this is the day of the Lord and absent some kind of catastrophic illness, we will be in the Lord's house on his day with his people. And if we are traveling, we will find a congregation somewhere where we can worship in his house on his day with his people, even if we're strangers there. Then they suddenly realize, hey, this stuff is important. And it structures our lives. Well, I think the same can be said 
of things like Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter. Jesus, of course, lived his earthly life within that Jewish pattern. And many of the episodes of his life described in the Gospels take place within that calendar of Jewish life. Well, when Jesus died and rose, all those celebrations and holidays and ceremonies which God had instituted in Old Testament times were fulfilled because God had given them to Israel in order to point to Jesus, in order to point to his ministry, his person, his works, and his words. And and so they were fulfilled in Jesus. But in the early church, which in the beginning, in the first few chapters of Acts, was almost exclusively Jewish, and later on even was heavily Jewish, they found value in having, if, if not, many of them still kept those old feasts, uh, and recommended them to their neighbors, but, but, but there was a recognition that there's something about those that's peculiar to the Jewish people, and now there's something else going on, and God is adding to his kingdom, and he's adding people that weren't raised Jewish and didn't have the experience of captivity in Egypt and being att- attempted to be wiped out by a Persian nasty guy. And so the, those ceremonies were not meaningful to them. They weren't appropriate for them. And, and so there were new um, New times set aside. And the first, of course, the most obvious one was Easter. I told you last week I don't like that word. Uh, it's actually the name of a pagan goddess. And there's all kinds of historical information as to how that got stuck on the name in the West. In the East, in the Greek-speaking church, it's known as Pascha, and, uh, which is actually the Greek word for Passover as well. And uh, I, I like that word okay. But um, sometimes I call it Easter just out of convention, but I, I always hold my nose when I do it. But uh, Pascha was the first holiday that the church said, this is important. And that one was easy to figure out and easy to schedule because we know when Jesus died. The scriptures tell us that Jesus died at a certain point in the Passover celebration, in that, in that week of celebrating. And so it was easy. You could just say, when's Easter? Well, Passover's here, and so we're going to have Easter here. And then the early church said, what are we going to do about the birth of Jesus? Because nobody knows when he was born. The scriptures don't say. And the, and the early church chose the winter solstice, the longest, darkest day of the year to celebrate. And as we are approaching the winter solstice now, you know, the days are still getting shorter and shorter and darker and colder and and, and everybody's starting to complain. I heard three people complain this week at about five o'clock at how dark and how cold it was. And it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse for about three more, two and a half more weeks. And then it'll start to get a little better each day because December 21st on our calendar is the winter solstice. And that's that's the coldest and darkest day of the year. And then after that, it gets a little lighter, a little earlier each day. And they said, we want to do that because just the act of nature making the days longer and the light lasts longer and bringing the light to enlighten our lives is, is a, a, a wonderful symbol of what Jesus did when he came into the world. And then over time, it became desirable to have a preparation time before the celebrations of Christmas and Easter. Lent is the name given to the 40 days before Easter. Advent is the name given to the 30 days before Christmas. 
And during Advent, we split our attention between two themes. The first theme is the second coming of Christ, his second Advent, which we are still waiting for. And so we sing these songs of longing, like, O come, O come, Emmanuel. You say, well, he's already come. He came 2,000 years ago. Well, he's coming back. And, and we're longing for his appearing. We love his appearing. And we long for his appearing. And we say, oh, please, Lord Jesus, Emmanuel, show up and bring this wicked world to an end with all of its suffering and all of its illness and all of its death and all of its violence and all of its poverty, all of its hate and every nasty thing and every nasty person and every nasty spirit. Bring it all to an end and fix everything. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And we sing songs and read scriptures also from the Old Testament that put us in the shoes of people like Simeon and Anna the prophetess who we encounter in Luke chapter 2. And we're told about these two people that they were longing for the Lord's salvation. They were longing for his appearance. And Simeon in particular is described to us in, in Luke chapter um, Two, or uh, as, as someone who is a man who is righteous and devout, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. Now, almost everyone knows that the Jews in the time of Jesus were under a Roman occupation and that they really hated it. And everybody knows that they were expecting a Messiah who was a military and political leader who would free them from their bondage. That's just, everybody knows that. You learn that in Sunday school. But what most people don't understand is that there was also at the same time a profound spiritual crisis in the lives of the Jewish people in those days as well. And there's a reason for that. The last book in the Old Testament is the book of the prophet Malachi. And Malachi probably wrote his prophecy down somewhere between about 458 and 433 B.C. And the interesting thing that happened is after Malachi closed his book and it was finished, God went silent on the Jewish people. God sent no prophet to the Jewish people for more than 400 years. Now that had never, ever happened before in the experience of the Jewish people. God had never stopped sending prophets to his people, talking to his people like that. There had always been a prophet, at least within the living memory of some of the old people. There were always prophets. And, and then God just disappeared. And the people could not understand it. And as they meditated on their national life as a nation, as Israel the nation, they realized things have started out, they started out so well for the nation. They came into the promised land. And by the power of God, they conquered the promised land. And then they were able to hold on to that land and make improvements to it. It was tough, and there were enemies, and God had to raise up people to help them, like we find in the book of Judges. But, but God eventually sent a king, King David, 
And he welded that people together and he forged them into a mighty nation. And he extended the borders of Israel and he conquered his enemies. And he was, the, the people around him were terrified of him and his military power. And David brought the nation to a place where it was feared and respected as a military and a political power. And then he passed the kingdom to his son, Solomon. And then he died. And Solomon, building on David's success, brought the nation such great wealth that silver became as common as stones in Jerusalem. And Solomon was the first economist. He realized that's inflation. And so he sought to get the silver out of Jerusalem as much as possible. And so he built a whole fleet of ships, even though the Jewish people had no experience with ocean sailing. He built a whole fleet of ships and he sent them all over the known world with that silver to buy stuff, to bring back to Jerusalem so that the people could get rid of more of their silver. And then they had stuff. And he, I mean, there was, everything came to Jerusalem then because that was where all the money was. The traders all wanted to go there. Not only did he do that, he built this magnificent temple for the Lord. And and he built it for the Lord to dwell among his people. And when he built it and when it was dedicated, the glory of the Lord came and filled that temple. And it was such that the priests couldn't even finish their work because the glory of the Lord just overwhelmed them. But then things started to go wrong, didn't they, if you know your Bible? Solomon disobeyed God and married a bunch of foreign wives. And the foreign wives didn't convert and start worshiping the God of Israel. They kept worshiping their national gods. And so he built little temples and places of sacrifice for his foreign wives. And then the people were like, huh, I'd like to worship Chemosh. I'd like to worship Asherah. I'd like to worship Dagon. I'm not going to stop worshiping God. I'll still go to temple when it's time, but... These other religions look kind of interesting and kind of fun, frankly. And so these high places, these places of worship of foreign gods were established by Solomon for his wives, and then he dies. And if you know what happens after that, things in the national life start to go wrong. Solomon's son was an idiot, and he caused a rebellion that split the nation. And it didn't split it in in half. It split it to where like 70% were against 30%. And the 10 tribes to the north became Israel. I think we've got a map of it somewhere. Maybe not. And the two tribes to the south became known as Judah. So you had Israel and Judah, north and south, the Yankees and the Rebs. And the ten tribes to the north disobeyed the Lord their God, and they fell into idolatry. And the Lord repeatedly sent prophets to them to warn them to repent, or there would be terrible punishment. But they didn't do it. And the Lord persisted in sending prophets, not just one or two, and not just for a short period of time, but for several hundred years. And the people ignored the prophets at best, and they persecuted and murdered them at worst. And so at some point, God says, enough. And in 722 BC, God raised up the king of the Assyrian Empire, a man named Shalmanser. And he used him as his instrument of vengeance on his disobedient people. And the Assyrians, they were from what today is uh, in Iraq and Syria. 
they went all the way up to Turkey, because you can't go straight across the desert very easy. They went all the way up to Turkey and came down from the south, and they swept through the land of Israel. And they conquered that northern kingdom of Israel. And they destroyed its capital city, the city of Samaria. And they deported the whole population to somewhere in the region where Iran and Iraq and eastern Turkey all come together in a common border. And from there, those people are just gone. They are lost to history. You hear the phrase, the ten lost tribes of Israel. That's why they're lost. Because this guy, this king, came and he literally took everybody and took them on a forced march. Now, why did he do that? Well, it was thought, first of all, if you love your land uh, and you know your land and you're going to have a rebellion after you're conquered, you're going to be in an advantage. And so we want to get them out of the land they know to a land they don't. But it was also thought that, that the gods of a particular people dwelled in the land where they dwelled. And so by removing them from their gods, from the land, they were trying to remove them from their gods and say, these gods can't help you anymore because they're, they're back in North Dakota or wherever. And so you need to just figure life out without your gods. And so, and so it was very common when he would conquer, when Shalmanser would conquer a people, he would take them and he would remove them from their land, and then he would take people from another place and bring them to that land that he had just emptied by kicking you out of it. And that's exactly what he did. He brought people from Babylon and Elamites and all kinds of foreigners there to live in that land. And there's an interesting story in the Old Testament where these people start living in this land and, God, and they were worshiping their gods and just acting like the pagans that they were and being filthy and everything. And God sent lions among them and the lions started killing them on a regular basis. And they realized this is more than just a lion problem. This is a supernatural problem. The God of this land is mad at us because we don't know his ways. And so they went to the king and they said, hey, could you send a couple of Jews over here to tell us what to do? And the king said, sure. And he sent some Jewish priests back and, and the priests instructed those people in the ways of God. And so they, they, they gave worship and homage to the Lord God because he was the God of that land, but they didn't quit worshiping their old gods either. And those people became the Samaritans in Jesus' day. And that's why everybody... In, the, in, in Judah, why, why the Jews hated them, because they were fake Jews. They, they had just adopted the Jewish religion to get rid of their lion problem and appease the Lord God. So, so that happened. And then, from there, they are lost to history, as I said, and the king of Assyria brought these other people into the land. So, God, so, so God's people go from a major regional military and political power with great wealth to a fractured nation that sometimes goes to war with each other, but which is also capable of alliance and cooperation with each other when necessary. And now all of a sudden, with the northern kingdom gone, you've just got Judah, which is a tiny remnant of two tribes, smack dab between the three largest empires in the Middle Eastern history. And those empires, in one way or another, will roll right through Judah's territory on their way to fight with each other. And so all of a sudden, Judah is very, very vulnerable militarily and politically. And all this is described in 2 Kings chapter 17. And, and it's really, it's an interesting story, I think. I, I love this Old Testament history because you, you just see, you see things rising and falling. But seven, 2 Kings chapter 17 
verse, starting in verse 7. The prophet who's writing, and we don't know who he is. He's anonymous. He's lost to history. He says this about the capture of Israel by the Assyrians. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and had walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I have commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe the Lord their God. They despised the statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false gods and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel, and he removed them out of his sight, and none was left but the tribe of Judah only. And then the very next sentence tells us what happened next. In the very next sentence, we see how Judah handled herself in the wake of all of this. And it says, Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. The Lord, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, describes it this way in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. And the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she's done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. And because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. 
Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. And if you want a a really graphic description from the Lord himself about all of this, you can read it in Ezekiel chapter 23 for your homework. It's pretty much rated R. And so I'm not going to do that for you without warning in the public worship of the people of God. How bad was it in Judah before the end? Well, in 2 Kings 23, the writer describes some reforms by a godly king named Josiah. And what Josiah found there in Jerusalem, according to the scriptures, was horrifying. Worship places dedicated to the pagan gods of all of Israel's neighbors had long been established and were in regular use. There was an altar to Molech that was in the valley of Hinnom, which is outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Molech was a particularly wicked, demonic god. And children were regularly sacrificed as burnt offerings to Molech in the valley of Hinnom. There were shrines to the god Baal, and the goddess Asherah inside of the temple. And women sold sacred woven artifacts to honor Asherah in the temple. And there were even male homosexual prostitutes, which were associated with the worship of Asherah, who lived in the temple and sold their bodies in the temple. And God sent prophets to warn the king and to warn the people, but they would not listen. They did not believe the prophets. They thought that the presence of God in the temple guaranteed that nothing would happen to them. I mean, if the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year and he was in grave danger of being killed every moment he was in there, and if he did something wrong, he was going to flop over dead, how then could any uncircumcised pagan do anything to Jerusalem or anything to the temple? The anger of God would just consume them and the Jews would be safe. It never occurred to them that God would just leave the temple. And that's what he did. And in Ezekiel, it describes it in Ezekiel 10 and Ezekiel 11. And Ezekiel sees in a vision the Shekinah glory of the Lord simply leaves the temple and his protection from his people is withdrawn. And in 586 B.C., a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem and he breaks down the walls and his troops ransack the temple and they steal all the gold and silver vessels and then he utterly destroys that first temple. And he, following the same plan as the Assyrians, carries almost the whole population off to Babylon. He leaves only the poorest and most simple people behind in the land to care for the fields and the orchards and the vineyards so the the land doesn't get rewilded. And for 70 years, the people of God are captives in Babylon. And this experience of the Babylonian captivity shatters the Jewish psyche. Some have said that they still haven't gotten over it. But in Psalm 137... We can read about how shattered they were. Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, 
There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our lyres. For our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We can't. Everything has been destroyed. Everything we thought was certain and sure has been destroyed. And we don't know if it's ever going to be given back. After 70 years in captivity in the city of Babylon, a different king comes to power. And he allows them to go back to Jerusalem if they want to. But few do. Most stay in Babylon. They've made a life for themselves. They've started businesses. They've raised families there. They've bought houses. And they're doing all the things they need to do to be good citizens in Babylon. They've made a life for themselves there. But there are some. Uh, One very small company returns under the leadership of a man named Nehemiah, and they proceed to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. And then a little later, another small company returns under the leadership of a priest named Ezra, and they begin to rebuild the temple of God. And you can read about those those, uh, events in Ezra and Nehemiah. It says in Ezra chapter 3 that the old men who had seen the original temple and remembered it, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the new temple being laid. Because Solomon's temple had been so glorious. And this temple was a shack. This temple was a terrible disappointment. It was such a disappointment that the people's enthusiasm for building it waned over time. And God had to send two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to rebuke the people who had failed to finish the job and properly support the temple. And all throughout the people, there was this general feeling among the people that there were just a tiny portion of a tiny portion and that life was exceedingly hard in Jerusalem, and that they were poor, and they were subject to heavy taxes, and there were droughts which ruined crops, and there was a plague of locusts at one point, which decimated every plant in the land, and there was the constant harassment by local enemies, and everything they thought that God was going to do for them had not happened. And foreign kings were ruling them. And then God goes silent for four hundred years. The, the attitude of many was summed up by the prophet Malachi in Malachi chapter 3 and verses 13 through 15. Zechariah. Malachi. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. And evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. In other words, the people were saying, why should we obey God? 
He hasn't taken care of us. Every good thing he said was going to happen to us hasn't happened yet, and things keep getting worse and worse and worse. It has been 600 years at this point of things going downhill, and it's not getting better. Why should we obey this God? They thought, like many professing Christians today, primarily in terms of worldly and outward peace and worldly and outward prosperity. They wanted an easy life. They wanted a life filled with good things. They wanted abundant and luxurious food and wine and good incomes and long lives and security. They wanted to be able to walk away from a spouse who they didn't feel was meeting their needs anymore. They wanted their independence politically and nationally. They wanted bad things not to happen to them. Now, they had had that before as a people during David and Solomon's time. And God was widely understood to be the reason that they were blessed in that way under those leaders. In their understanding, they thought they were pretty good people. Most of them, by the time of coming back from the Babylonian captivity, had given up Baal, had given up Asherah, had given up Molech. They were only worshiping the Lord God. I mean, what, what God wouldn't want to have a fine people like us on his team? And instead, he punishes us for every little thing. That was the reasoning of some, of many. But there were others. They were a minority of a minority of a minority. Perhaps there was a tiny minority who did love God and who did fear God, and who did want to live for God. And then God goes silent. And the ones who wanted to live for God said, guys, I think he's done with us. I think God has given us the same kind of certificate of divorce that he gave to Israel in the prophet Jeremiah. I think God has cast us off as he cast off Israel. Perhaps he's changed his mind about us. And the godly were heartbroken at the thought. But in Malachi chapter 3, in verses 6 and 7, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Return to me, and I shall return to you. And so they waited, and they watched, and they prayed, and they hoped, but their hope was long deferred, hundreds and hundreds of years. And it says in Proverbs that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so they were sick in their hearts. They waited in sickness of heart year by year, decade by decade. Empires rose and flourished and fell. The Persians ruled them. Then Alexander the Great was telling them what to do. And then one of his generals, Seleucius, was telling him what to do. And then another one named Ptolemy was telling him what to do. Then the descendants of Ptolemy were telling them what to do. Then the descendants of Seleucius. Then the Romans. Every time they turn around, here was some foreigner tramping through their land with their hands out, demanding obedience and taxes. They were poor. They were oppressed. They were despised. They were overtaxed. They were abused. And still God was silent. And he did not seem to care. Until one day, a star appears. And wise men from the east arrive at Herod's palace. 
asking about a baby born to be the king of the Jews. And shepherds are visited by an angelic army of God announcing God's good intentions and his favor upon not only his people, but all the people of the world in the birth of this Messiah. And they thought, at last, things are going to go back to the way they were a a thousand years ago at this point. David had been almost a thousand years before. At last, things are going to go back like they should be. He will take the throne of his father, David, and he will make everything wrong right again. And they thought they knew what that meant. But he did not do what they expected him to do. The root of their material adversity was God's withdrawal of his blessing. But God withdrew his blessings from his people because they loved sin more than they loved God. They were not good people. They thought they were, but they were not. Christ had come to set his people free, not from the Romans, but from the devil. From the perverse desires of their own wicked hearts, he came to set them free. Because that was really what captive Israel needed to be ransomed from. If God had given them back material prosperity, they would have abused it. And they would have been wicked. They did. There were little times where the Jews in this period kind of had some things going on that looked pretty good. They got their country back for a little while, and the first thing they did was start bickering with each other, killing each other, and oppressing their neighbors. They just behaved, they, they behaved basically like Muslims behave now. They told a whole nation of Moab, you guys are now going to be uh, basically circumcised into our religion, and we're going to force you to keep our religion. And so they converted them under compulsion and said, you're Jews now but we also hate you because you weren't born Jews. So you're second-rate Jews. They did that kind of thing over and over again. Christ had come because captive Israel needed to be ransomed from the sin in their own hearts. Christ came to fulfill what was prophesied by the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and all your idols. And I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey all my rules. That's what Jesus came to ransom captive Israel from. And the same is true today. You and I are not good people. We don't deserve material prosperity, and when we get it, it tends to corrupt us. And we must be born again in spirit and in truth. We must be sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb. We must have our hearts of stone removed and receive instead a heart of flesh. We must have his Holy Spirit implanted within us so that we are able to walk in his ways and in his statutes. And that's what Jesus came for. He didn't come to make you prosperous in this world. He didn't come to make you happy in this world's way of thinking and reckoning. He came to save your soul. He came to save you from yourself and the slavery to Satan 
and this, the slavery that this world imposes upon us in terms of the things of God and the right and the good. He came to save us from that. And from that, we need to be ransomed. And to be born again is to have that happen. To recognize, I have been purchased. I have been redeemed. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock and my redeemer.